I just want to capture that beauty. I want to know more about it. Like you could get lost looking into mm -hmm. the center of one daisy. Mm -hmm. You could get lost in there. You just look deeper and deeper and deeper and there's always more there and it's beautiful. Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever been enchanted to find a ladybug making its way across a rosebud. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking with Marnie Filling, whose voice you just heard, about the species that are likely right outside your door. Whether you live in a suburb, down a rural road, or in a bustling city center. Because today we're talking about American marsupials, the tiny oceans inside of roly-polies, what happened to earthworms during the last ice age, pocket terrariums, the Venn diagram between weeds and invasive plants, and how to welcome entire food webs right in among us as our neighbors. And if you like learning about the natural world, especially in California, make sure you're following the show wherever you listen, because there are so many new episodes coming up soon, recorded all across the state, all with delightful and engaging guests. So hit the follow button on Spotify or the little plus sign in the top right corner of the screen in Apple Podcasts, and make sure you won't miss an episode. I also want to thank everyone who's supporting the show on Patreon for as little as $4 a month. You make this podcast possible, and with more people joining all the time, you are absolutely validating the decision to quit my job and pursue this dream full-time. I'm super grateful for every single person in the Patreon community, and as a thank you, there's even a new patrons-only book club where we vote on and read interesting ecological books and then discuss them every month. If you'd like to join the book club or just support the show, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. If you want to keep up with me online, you can see pictures and videos from my various nature adventures by looking me up at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. There's also a Golden State Naturalist Facebook page, and you can check out my website at goldenstatenaturalist.com, which is where you can find merch and get cozy with a Golden State Naturalist sweatshirt or mug just in time for colder weather. But now let's get to the episode. Marnie Filling earned her bachelor's degree in zoology with a minor in English literature from UC Davis and a master's certificate in natural science illustration from UC Santa Cruz. Since then, she's done everything from teaching college-level biology labs to creating award-winning seasonal window displays out of recycled packing materials in an independent bookstore, to writing and illustrating four books, including her guide to Pacific Coast tide pools, and of course, a beautiful guide to nature in your neighborhood. So without further ado, let's hear from Marnie Filling on Golden State Naturalist. Marnie at her house in Sacramento back in the end of May. Perfect day for this. It is. I can't believe it's not hot. I thought, oh no, two o'clock in the Looking afternoon. down the street, I could see an assortment of mostly single-story 1940s or 50s era homes with carefully edged grass lawns, the bushes under the windows cut into neat rectangles, and an occasional geranium, rosebush, or citrus tree dotting the landscape. This neighborhood reminded me a lot of the one where I grew up in Napa and many others I've driven through around the state, except with more palm trees than sycamores along the road. Marnie and I got mic'd up and stepped out the front Literally door. Literally two steps out, and there are all these 
shiny, shimmery slug trails. Right and there. right in the midst of the many species I've come to expect in human-dominated spaces, there was something surprising. If I had seen it on my own, I wouldn't have known what I was looking it's at. One of my favorite things. It's oak. One of the... and may have just walked right past it because it was only a few inches across and really looked like a few small green leaves lying down stuck into the dirt, almost mixed up with the dirt. But what was this thing? It's not an actual plant. It doesn't have roots and stems and leaves. It's more closely related to like mosses mm. and that kind of grade of plant that needs to be somewhere damp, which is not Sacramento <laughs> and certainly not the last few years, though this year it definitely was. So apparently there were some parts that were resistant enough to survive there, but it's a liverwort. It's one of my favorite things from doing botany. It's a little very low growing plant. It's called a phalloid one because it has a body. It has like wide parts that are close to the ground mm -hmm. and it doesn't have these parts now but I'll send you a picture. There are two reproductive phases and the one that's asexual that makes spores, it makes like little, it's called Lunularia is the mm. genus name. So loon like the moon. It makes little kind of crescent moon little cups and then there are almost little like green eggs in there oh, that wow. are the little, they're called jemmy that grow into the next life stage, which produces sperm and eggs, and then the union of that grows into this. So it's an alternation of generations. But why does it grow so close to the dirt? It has to be in contact because it doesn't have roots, so it can't, oh. it can't pull water out of the soil. It has to actually mm. make contact with the soil to get the water from it. And it doesn't have any of the tough plant things that all these, like this lavender, can live in pretty dry habitats, but mm -hmm. not the liverworts. It's like one of the first experiments in plants coming on land sort of a thing. Yeah, 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 <laughs> one yeah. One of their yeah. first tries at yep. it. So that means it's super ancient. Yes, they've been around for a long time, like mosses. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, the oldest known liverwort fossils were discovered in Argentina in rocks dated to be between 473 million and 471 million years old. So these guys have been doing their thing for a long time. Humans as a species are only about 300,000 years old, which is a lot less years old. We're sort of the babies on the scene, evolutionarily speaking. Yet humans have had profound impacts on our environment both positive and negative. And one of the places we can see that most clearly is in our neighborhoods. So this episode is an invitation to slow down and look more closely at the organisms that are your neighbors, to lean into your curiosity and find out more about them so that you can deepen your relationship with the place where you live. Learning what a species is, something of its history, whether it's native, introduced, or invasive, how much wildlife it supports, and how it fits into the broader ecosystem are all things that add so much context to a simple walk around the block and allow each of us to make more informed choices about which species we welcome into our yards. We get into all of that on a walk through Marnie's neighborhood with a stop in Sacramento's largest urban park after a quick break. Today on Golden State Naturalist, we're talking about the nature in our neighborhoods with Marnie Filling. As Marnie and I started our walk down her street, 
we noticed a bunch of dead, leafless vines wrapped around the upper half of a palm tree. These are like roots of some English ivy. I was going to ask um, if that was English ivy. English oh ivy, and you can tell because you can see where the old roots were, and that's how wow. they attach. They have like special glues and roots that they send out from the stems, yeah. whereas a Boston ivy has those little... Okay, let's talk about English ivy for a second. I just looked it up on the California Invasive Plant Council website, or Cal IPC, and the IPC gives each invasive plant one of five invasiveness ratings, starting with watch at the very bottom, up through alert, limited, moderate, and high all the way at the top. Any guesses which rating English ivy earned? I'll give you a hint. It's not any of the bottom four. This one's really highly invasive. And if you're like, hang on, what exactly is an invasive plant? Isn't it all just part of nature? Honestly, I should do an entire episode on invasive plants. But basically, they're plants that come from somewhere else, notice that they don't have any natural pests or diseases in their new home, and get a little carried away spreading across the landscape. And They can create a monoculture by keeping other plants from being able to grow while they themselves spread, which by definition decreases biodiversity and harms entire food webs. Here's Cal IPC's definition of highly invasive plants, such as English ivy, from their website. It says, these species have severe ecological impacts on physical processes, plant and animal communities, and vegetation structure. Their reproductive biology and other attributes are conducive to moderate to high rates of dispersal and establishment. Most are widely distributed ecologically. But what if I really like English ivy and I would like to just plant it just in my yard? Because I know I'll keep it contained. I wish it were that easy. Unfortunately, invasive plants are really, really good at spreading, even when we don't want them to. Many send out underground rhizomes, others have seeds that drift on the wind or get stuck in fur, and some have fruits or seeds that are appealing to birds, which then disperse them far and wide. I was driving to Auburn in the Sierra foothills the other day to go hiking with my family, and I noticed some English ivy that had escaped from someone's yard taking over an entire section of forest along eastbound I-80. And in that whole area, the understory had been smothered. The only plant living there was the English ivy, which was starting to make its way up the trees, which it may also eventually strangle. This plant is still for sale in California, unfortunately. There are like four varieties of it for sale at my local Home Depot right now. So please just do not buy. And if you're looking for an alternative ground cover, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife suggests native alum root, which is beautiful, likes a lot of the same types of places as English ivy, is super low maintenance, and won't escape and kill a forest. I have yet to identify some of the trees. Still working on it. There's so many. There's so many different kinds. I mean, Sacramento is the city of trees. Marnie has lived in New York for the past 20 years and just recently returned to her home city. So she hadn't heard that the city's nickname was changed from the city of trees to America's farm to fork capital, which has caused quite a kerfuffle locally. But before all that happened, there's the history of how Sacramento became the city of trees. Settlers started coming here and they were just like, it's too hot. So they started planting trees and the wives of the magnates had their little projects, and Mm -hmm. uh, we got some pretty amazing trees between Capitol Park and Lamb Park, where I'm walking you to now. Oh, there is so much here. 
First of all, Sacramento has a lot of nicknames. It's been called Cap City because, of course, it's the capital city of California, River City because it's located at the confluence of the American and Sacramento rivers, and then the more casual Sac and Sac Town. But the two nicknames causing the stir are City of Trees and Farm to Fork Capital. This is because the water tower, located beside southbound I-5, a few miles south of downtown, for years bore the words, Welcome to Sacramento, City of Trees. But then, in March of 2017, it was repainted with the words, Welcome to Sacramento, America's Farm to Fork Capital. A lot of people were not fans of this change. I went down some rabbit holes on Reddit and found a lot of vibrant self-expression happening over there. But I think that the Redditor Sacramento Historian summed it up best by simply commenting, Fork that. But why were people mad? Farm to fork is good, right? I mean, Sacramento is known for ag, and it's a positive thing to source food locally and lower the carbon emissions from transporting food long distances. Plus, City of Trees isn't exactly a unique nickname. The Wikipedia page for City of Trees lists 14 cities currently nicknamed City of Trees, six of which are located in California. Those are Burlingame, Chico, Claremont, South Pasadena, Tustin, and Woodland, which is right down the road from Sacramento in two cities formerly nicknamed City of Trees, one of which is Sacramento. And all of this is true. But man, do people love trees. And Sacramento really does have a lot of trees. According to Sacktown Magazine, which admittedly might be biased, a project called Treepedia out of MIT has been measuring tree coverage in cities using Street View on Google Maps. And they found that, quote, among the 15 cities we analyzed, Sacramento is the greenest city in the States. And the article goes on to say that globally, we rank third after Vancouver and Singapore. And trees do all kinds of wonderful things in cities. YaleClimateConnections.org has a whole article on this, which I'll link in the show notes. But a few of the noteworthy contributions of urban forests are that urban forests alone offset the climate pollution from nearly 10 million cars. And the article goes on to say that the cooling provided by urban forests can increase resilience to worsening heat waves. Access to trees can also help reduce individual stress, improve mental health, strengthen immune systems, reduce crime, and improve student academic performance, among other benefits. Unfortunately, not everyone has equal access to well-canopied city streets. And canopy cover is disproportionately low in poorer communities and black and brown communities than in affluent and white communities. Locally, the Sacramento Tree Foundation is working hard to address this disparity and regularly plants trees in less canopied neighborhoods and parks and has partnered with our local municipal utilities district to give every SMUD customer up to 10 free shade trees, whether they rent or own their property. So check that out if you live in Sacramento. There are also similar projects in other parts of the state, such as City Plants in Los Angeles. So definitely check to see if there's anything near you. Okay, but another reason so many Sacramentans want the nickname to stay City of Trees? It's a long-standing tradition, at least when compared with the Farm to Fork title. It's been called City of Trees since 1855, meaning that people who grew up here or have had family here for several generations have known it that whole time as the City of Trees. Okay, but this goes even deeper, because before it was the City of Trees, it was the City of Plains, which is very different from a place with trees. I found a Cap Radio article about this, and they interviewed a local research ecologist, Paula Pepper, who said that a miner stuck 12 cottonwood trees in the ground outside of his tent, and that was the first planting in Sacramento. She also noted that eucalyptus trees imported from Australia, and now known to be invasive in California, by the way, were soon to follow because they sucked up water from swampy areas. And as Marnie pointed out, a lot of wealthy women took up the cause and influenced the planting of more trees around the city. 
So how about you? Are you team farm to fork or team city of trees? Personally, I gotta go with city of trees, but like let's plant as many native trees as possible. Now back to my walk with Marnie in the most canopied part of Sacramento, Land Park. As we left the neighborhood and entered the park, we noticed a bunch of little daisies growing in the grass. Daisies just like the ones Marnie remembers growing outside her kindergarten when she was a kid. We would sit out there and make the daisy chains and make crowns and necklaces and bracelets and all that. Like it was just so prosaic. That's one of the things that I think is good for people to do to try when they're starting to naturalize for the first time is to use your camera Mm. as a magnifying glass because like dandelions and cosmos and so many, so many flowers, daisies have are made up of hundreds of flowers. The tool you have on you is the best tool. So I tried what Marnie suggested with the daisy and took a close-up photo. You take a minute to then zoom in and look at it. You can see the different colors. Like you think of it as just white and yellow, but then you're like, oh, there's this like creamy and there's this greenish and this, there's all these different colors within the daisy and And different phases of flower development. Right. And so each, each of the petals is a flower Mm. that is specialized to attract pollinators. And then each of the bumps in the middle, those yellow bumps, is a flower. And you can see that when you zoom way in like that. You can see that it has little petals and it has the little reproductive parts. But that's one of my favorite things to do. Like you can, I've taken pictures of, you know, if there's an insect that's being still and crawling around, Mm. you can zoom way in and I've gotten amazing pictures with my cell phone of, I don't have internet out here so I can't find it, but you can really look and see all those close things. You know, most insects have little tiny simple eyes in the middle of their forehead and you can zoom right into that and see it with your phone. That's so cool. We're all carrying around. And you have it all the time Um, so you don't need a special toolkit. Right. Oh, that's so cool. Are there other tools that you recommend for people or would you say just go minimalist? I would start without the phone mm-hmm. unless you really need that to get you interested. I think the easiest thing to do is just to walk around and just look, mm-hmm. just observe and see what you can find. And the funnest thing for me is watching life cycles. If you look on my Instagram or anything. Marnie's Instagram is at Marnie Filling. That's M-A-R-N-I-F-Y-L-L-I-N-G. I'm always doing like the development of the flowers or the development of the fruits from the flowers or that kind of stuff because it's fascinating to see the changes or how the leaves unfurl. And so just look at everything and come back and look tomorrow and look the next day and just keep coming out and looking and see how it changes and what happens because you might be surprised. I One of my walks, I was just taking pictures of buds. It was the middle of winter. I was Mm. taking pictures of all the buds I could find anywhere and one of them just looked so messy and funky. The picture looked terrible. And I thought, oh, I should delete this one, but I didn't. And I was really glad because as it grew over the next like couple weeks, they turned into those little Samaras of maple trees. Oh. But they just, they started out as this funky flower with all <laughs> this, this, this crazy stuff. And, and then as it got bigger, the stems started growing out and the seeds started growing out. And then you had these droopy little seeds on the ends of the stems. And it was like magic. I had no idea that's how they started. And most trees have, well, flowering trees anyway, have flowers. And sometimes they're not 
super showy because most of them are wind pollinated, but they still have flowers and you can find the different the male and female parts and it's very, very cool. It's is, fun to watch them develop. And that's one of the cool things about checking out what's growing in your neighborhood too, is that you right. can get that right. relationship over time. Right. Because I feel like when I look at the development of a plant, right, and I'm like, oh, this year I noticed, you know, these little buds, the buds on my poppies, right? And mm-hmm. they've got that little hat for a second, right? right? <laughs> and it's like, it's like it hasn't popped off yet and the flower hasn't quite opened up. And, and looking at it again the next year can kind of transport me back to the moment last year. Right, and I can, I can, that thing. yeah, I can travel through time to like the first time I saw that or noticed it. It's almost like a, a painting or a drawing that you return to every year and you add like another layer. You're deepening that relationship and you're going back and you can go deeper when you're in one place over time. Right. And the poppy is a great example mm. because it does have that little cap. You just want to yeah. flick it off <laughs> and watch true. the petals unfurl and then you watch that capsule just grow and grow and grow until it gets like that long and then if you let it dry out and watch it explode and those seeds go everywhere everywhere we moved on from the patch of daisies and continued our walk through the park marnie pointed out so much as we went like dandelions also like daisies they're made up of multiple flowers but they're all the ray flowers and a nuttall's woodpecker but i've seen a few just in my neighborhood woodpeckers i love it it's crazy they're just they make me happy. we stopped for a while to look closely at some burr clover this is also really cool to look at magnified because it's like a spiral yeah i wonder if i have my loop with me really cool i said i just use my phone for all that stuff yeah. now i have a loop but burr clover are a mediterranean plant and the California Invasive Plant Council lists them in the limited category of invasiveness. So not great, but also not wrecking habitat as thoroughly as English ivy. And if you find yourself pulling them out in your yard, take a good look at them, especially with a loop magnifier or using the zoom on your phone, because they're really cool looking close up. Oh my goodness, there's like several layers. They remind me of sea anemones. Or sea urchins. Or sea urchins, yeah, Yeah. even more so. And it's fun to, again, to watch these over time, too, because you see the little yellow flowers first. Mm-hmm. And then you come a couple weeks later and the fruits are starting to develop. And then you come later and they're getting bigger and more mature. And then they're going to be prickly and owie <laughs> and full of seeds. They start out so delightful, <laughs> right? They woo you. They right. charm you. The next right. creature we found was one that was especially important to Marnie and her budding connection to the natural world when she was Hi, a kid. Hi, little friend. Look at that. That's a good cat. It was a little ladybug larvae, which doesn't look anything like an adult ladybug. And you wouldn't think that it was a ladybug unless you knew that you were looking at one. Because they don't have the characteristic red outer shell with the black dots. Instead, they're sort of elongated, black, spiky little bugs with some orange or reddish-orange markings. The eggs will be laid on leaves or on bark and anywhere that might have aphids or something that they can eat that would be nearby. But I used to have all these little insects as pets when I was a kid, and so I got to see all their life cycles. I used to have ladybugs, and you'd see them mating, and you'd Ooh. see the eggs, and then you'd see the larvae that really look like little alligators almost, and they're super voracious. Mm, um, are they? Yeah. Do they and eat would, aphids too, like the adults? Yes. And they'll eat each other if there oh. aren't enough aphids for them so you had to make sure if you had the babies that you had to feed them well or they would just monge on each other did you go find Um, aphids for them i did we had rose bushes that had lots of aphids on them so i would just cut off a little rose bud which nobody in my family cared too much about that so Mm -hmm. it was fine 
And I would even, I'd bring my favorites to school with me in a Tic Tac container. I'd have a little, I'd have a little, cut off a little rosebud with aphids on it and oh put like God. my favorite ladybugs in it and stick it in my little shirt pocket and bring them to school with me. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, you had a little traveling terrarium. Yeah, I brought my pet mouse to school oh. in my pocket sometimes too. I was a weirdo. <laughs> I've always been a little, a little odd like that, I love but that. in a good way. These are things that it is funny that they eat the same thing as the adults because a lot of insects that go through complete metamorphosis like that, the larvae eat something different. And mm. it's part of the insect strategy is that the larvae just eat, mm -hmm. eat, eat, eat. They're like little stomachs with legs and they just eat like crazy. And then the adults usually eat something different mm. or maybe they don't eat at all. And the mm -hmm. adults can focus on attracting a mate and reproducing. They don't have to waste their time chowing as much as the babies do. One of the things Marnie and I didn't talk about on our outing was lawns. I think this might be because lawns aren't exactly known for being a wellspring of biodiversity. So they didn't offer a lot for us to observe while getting closer to the neighborhood nature, except for the weeds growing amidst the grass. I also think that lawns can become almost invisible to us because they're so ubiquitous. But I wanted to make sure to discuss them in this episode because they're one of the most common green things in so many of our neighborhoods. They're so common, in fact, that a 2005 study by NASA estimated that more surface area is devoted to lawns than to any other single irrigated crop in the country. That's including corn. Lawn takes up roughly three times the amount of space as irrigated corn in this country. And unfortunately, lawns don't offer a whole lot of ecological benefit in the way of pollen or nectar for pollinators, fruit or nuts for birds or mammals, or appealing leaves for caterpillars to eat, which would in turn feed birds. And I've heard people defend lawns by pointing out how much carbon they sequester, and they do sequester carbon. The problem is that, as Harold Mooney and Erica Zavaleta put in their book, Ecosystems of California, the benefits of lawn soil carbon sequestration for mitigating global warming are offset by greenhouse gas emissions for lawn maintenance and fertilization. There are also myriad other problems with lawns, like using all that drinking water we use to irrigate them with, and the subsequent runoff from fertilizers and pesticides ending up in our waterways. The point is, while small areas of lawn can have a lot of utility around our homes, most of us don't need as much as we have. There's a good chance you already know this and maybe want to do something about it, but it can be costly, time-consuming, and overwhelming to think about removing a lawn and replacing it with something else. So if it's not feasible for you to remove your whole lawn right now, just remember that progress can come in small steps. Even just stopping using pesticides and fertilizers makes a difference. I'm currently doing that and also replacing bushes with native shrubs and reducing my lawn by adding a native plant border. I want to do more in the future, but that's what I can do right now. And I've already seen bunches of native bees on some of the native wildflowers that I grew by doing little more than throwing seeds on a bare piece of ground. Check out the Growing Native Plants from Seeds episode for more on that process. So do what you can, when you can, incorporate native plants, remove invasives, and you're making a big difference. I'll also list some more resources that will be helpful wherever you are on this journey at the end of the episode. You got this. At this point, Marnie and I found a place to sit in the grass in the shade of a mighty sycamore tree. And the first thing I wanted to know was more about Marnie's journey to becoming a scientist and science illustrator. I was just wondering, like, I know you grew up in Sacramento and you mentioned in the introduction to Nature in Your Neighborhood how you had these early experiences where you weren't going to national parks to experience nature, right? So like, can you maybe just share a few of those formative experiences where you're experiencing nature right in your own neighborhood or backyard? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know where it came from because neither of my parents is a very outdoorsy mm -hmm. person. And there wasn't, we didn't have screens. So that was a good thing because mm -hmm. there wasn't that distraction. We had the old TVs that got, you know, like three stations. Mm -hmm. And we had a little backyard and a little front yard and we would make mud and we would, you know, sit in the mud and make mud pies and do all that <laughs> stuff and bake them on the white fence, which I'm sure my Our mom parents. really loved. And there were so many things that were just right there in the backyard. A lot of them were weeds, but some of them weren't. And there were pill bugs and ladybugs. And we had tomato plants for a while. So we had pet tomato hornworms, which are this oh, horrible pest. Gosh, like as an yeah. adult, you just want to kill them. But as kids, it was just like, cool. And we had them as pets. And <laughs> we had, I did all of them as pets. So I'd make little homes. We had moss. I'd make little, get a little jar, my Easter basket, and put little moss in there and maybe put a bottle cap with water and pick some violets or something and have those in there make this pretty little home for the insects the ladybugs i knew ate aphids so i would cut off a rosebud for them and plop that in there but the other things i didn't really know what they ate so i just put things in there and my sister actually with the tomato hornworms we made this beautiful home for them my sister who was younger than me three years younger put her tomato worm into a u-band coffee jar stuffed with leaves and my friend and I, who made the moss-lined lovely homes, our tomato worms started shrinking. Mm. And we thought, oh, they're turning into pupas. And we were so excited. But now as an adult, I know they were starving. Oh, no. Which is so horrific. But we didn't know. Right. It's just, you know. And my sister's in this jar of leaves you know she just took a bunch of leaves like this and just stuffed it full hers turned into this beautiful pupa wow and she had it under her bed and every month or so we'd pull it out and take it out and it was still like zooming around in there and I asked her a couple years ago before while I was writing this book I said whatever happened to that big pupa yeah. she was like I don't know <laughs> <laughs> And I did a little sketchbook drawing of the ladybugs in the Tic Tac container oh, and the pill bugs and the, my favorite pill bugs. There were some that were orange and there mm. were some that were purple, but not very often. So they were really special. And I found out also as an adult that the purple anyway is a virus oh. that causes them to turn purple. And the purple, you're actually looking at the virus. Like oh, wow. those are the virus particles that are purple and it makes them not seek out places to hide as much I mm. guess so that they infect others like I don't know what the story is oh, of that wow. I haven't heard that but it just was interesting to find out that my special special little pill bugs actually had a virus oh, no. um, and they are pill bugs are like one of the few crustaceans that is terrestrial mm. you know you have all these crustaceans are the group of arthropods with insects and all those and the crustaceans are the lobsters and the shrimp and the barnacles and all those guys that are mostly aquatic and mostly ocean although not all because you have crawdads and stuff like that that live in fresh water but the pill bugs are one of the few crustaceans that are adapted to life on land mm except they do need to be in damp places oh. they have that hard shell that helps keep them dry and then even their eggs they hold their eggs in a little marsupium that's filled with fluid so it's almost like they have a little ocean Gosh. in their body to raise their eggs in until they hatch and then they stay in there for a little bit until they're ready to come out wow it's cool stuff that's, that's just your pill bugs in your yard right and that's something <laughs> everyone knows this little crustacean right <laughs> right but everybody has a different word for it so uh -huh. that's, that's the other thing like I knew my dad called them potato bugs and we called them pill bugs and sow bugs and 
people call them roly polies, and then you get into the British names, oh. and they call them like chuggy pigs oh. and cheese logs, <laughs> cheese and logs. just some really great names. That's Definitely very worth googling. Yeah. That's what I love about common names. They're so confusing, right. right? Like I understand people's criticisms of common names, but I delight in the different common names that they that exist around these different species. They're fantastic. Because that just sounds extremely British. It is. Cheese log. Yeah. Chuggy pig. Chuggy pig. <laughs> what American would ever say that? <laughs> so good. I'm curious to hear your take on what is the difference, or your take, or what is the definition? What's the difference between a weed and an invasive plant? Well, I mean, a weed technically is just something that's growing where you don't want it. So you could have a rose plant that was growing right here, and if you didn't want it here, it's a weed, mm -hmm. technically. And some people's weeds are other people's favorite plants, you know, so there's, so weed doesn't really mean anything. Mm -hmm. It just means where the thing is growing. Something invasive is a plant that's taking over a habitat. So we talked a little bit about invasive plants earlier with English ivy. But it's interesting to also compare them with weeds, because to call something a weed is more subjective and open to interpretation based on what people want or don't want growing around them. But the things that are invasive are invasive independent of what people think of them because of their observable ecological impacts. So when you introduce something that from another place that, you know, I hear, I forget what the stats are, but if you introduce a non-native species, there's only like five or 10% of them that will live in the new habitat. And then some percentage of those will be invasive where they'll wow. actually, you know, they don't have anything that eats them there. They don't have predators. They go crazy and they take over habitat so that other things can't grow there. And that's, that's, I think, the main difference. So it's possible to have something growing that's a weed that's not invasive. Like I was at Hedro Farms this spring, which grows exclusively California native plants for seed. And there were lupins growing in a field of California gold fields. And Hedro had to pull out the lupins, even though they're native plants, because they can't let the seeds get mixed up when they harvest that field. Don't worry, though, there was an entire field of lupins nearby, too. So the lupins in the wrong field were weeds. But then you can also have invasive plants that are technically not weeds, because people sometimes intentionally plant invasives and want them growing where they've planted them. For instance, I grew up in Napa, where invasive mustard is an almost ubiquitous cover crop visible in early spring between the rows of vines. So technically, both invasive and not a weed. This got me curious about whether there are any native plants that can be used as cover crops. Calscape lists four species, including California poppies, Pacific pea, American vetch, and cow's clover. I don't know if these would work in vineyards or not, but it would be awesome to see more native or at least non-invasive plants used as cover crops so they could help meet farmers' needs and ecosystem needs at the same time. And speaking of needs, both humans and wildlife have a lot of them. And sometimes people and animals both get legitimate use and enjoyment out of plants that may not be best for the overall health of an ecosystem. So what should we do if there are plants like this in our yards? I think that the natives need to replace something else, not mm. just rip out, indiscriminately rip out stuff that you don't like and not replace it. Like one of my friends was saying, oh yeah, I have neighbors that tore out some trees in their yards because they weren't native trees. And she's like, are you going to put something else there to be like nesting 
for mm -hmm. birds and you know so it's it's a very mixed bag at this point i mean i think there's some kind of way to gradually transition which it seems like we're kind of moving towards so i hope that's true it seems like there's some really good movements now and there's so much more information and mm -hmm. awareness about what you can plant that's going to be the most beneficial to wildlife in your neighborhood so hopefully that'll right. catch on you know replace it with something i think that's right. really that's right. a really great point instead of just like right don't just um, rip it out you have, have a plan Right, right. Instead of just like putting gravel or concrete or something that is not going to create a food source. One of the things I love the most in Nature in Your Neighborhood and surprised me the most with was learning about worms. And I'm wondering if you can just give us a little recap of the natural history of worms here, especially, I don't know if it's California specific or what kind of region. I don't think it is specific to here but I don't know exactly and it was really hard to find that like really? that was it's um one of the things that's wonderful and terrible about the internet is there's just too much mm. information so when you're trying to research something like this there's so much information that you find a lot of stuff you know is wrong and you find a lot of stuff it's like is this right mm. and so you have to keep looking and try to vet sort of the reliability of the source where it's coming from or talk to actual people who know what they're talking about and one of the things that I did find but again I don't know I think it's more north northern North America than mm -hmm. here but that during the ice age the glaciers actually literally scraped the topsoil away with all the native worms and so those northern forests don't have native earthworms and they have evolved without earthworms and so if you go churn up the soil now, they don't like it because they want it stable. And everybody thinks, you know, oh yeah, plant, get those earthworms, they make the soil good. Sure. And it's good for your garden, but it's not good for the forest, which is trippy. It's and apparently there are only a couple native California earthworms that are left. So I guess we must have been affected by that to some degree, but I don't know my geology and all that. The deep time right, stuff. Yeah. Now. <laughs> That's all. It's like millions of, of dollars or or it's like astronomic time. Like it just mm -hmm. have no concept of it. It's just no. too much. It, I don't I don't think my, my brain can't. No. <laughs> can't process that for sure. <laughs> yeah, I love the earthworm thing because I kind of envision going into a forest, right? And if you were to like dig down in this very earthy way, right? Like with your hands into the soil, you imagine like these handfuls of like black earth with earthworms crawling through them. And it's probably just really not true in a lot right, of these, especially right. the Northern forests. Yeah, I was surprised about that too. What is an organism that people think that they know well, but maybe that they have something totally wrong or just don't know it very well at all? Either a myth or misconception or something that we just really don't know as well as we think we do by proximity. That was partly what I wanted the book to be because mm -hmm. we all grew up with these things. Like I said, it was the opposite of my Tide Pool book where you're right. introducing them to just all these new things. And this is like taking all these things that we think we know about. And there are some things where the science has actually changed since mm -hmm. I learned it in college and some things that we just had wrong all this time. And one of them that made the impression on me was another earthworm thing 
which is that, you know, the earthworms crawl out. You know, we'd go to play tennis in gym, and there would be earthworms all over the tennis courts, and I'd, my friend and I would run around and <laughs> pick them all up and put them in the lawn. And what the thinking was at that time was that they were drowning. It would uh-huh. rain, and they were drowning, and so they came up out of their burrows so that they wouldn't drown. And apparently they can live for a very long time submerged in water. Wow. And so it's still not completely certain. Some people say that, oh, the patter of the rain is similar to a mole digging. And so they're trying to get away from the mole, oh. which might be a component. But the other thing is that since they have that really thin skin and they can dry out really easily and they will suffocate if their skin dries out because then they can't get oxygen across their moist skin, they'll travel at night when it's misty or when it's rainy because they can travel mm-hmm. during that time because things are wet and they won't dry out and so they will maybe if it's raining they'll maybe go a little farther than they could have gone otherwise and then they get trapped and the sun comes out they're sort of left there in the middle of the sidewalk or in the middle of the street and stranded wow and so it's still doing them a service to go and move them off of the tennis court so they don't get stepped on but absolutely but, <laughs> but it's not because they were going to drown in a puddle there right do you have any favorite bits of trivia if you were like at a cocktail party and you just wanted to like make chatter with somebody. What would be kind of your favorite trivia about the little local organisms that we have around here? One that I think is really funny that I also learned while researching for this book is opossums, which are just fascinating and they're pretty much everywhere. They are native to the American South. They're the only marsupial that's native to North America. And they're resistant to like, rattlesnakes can bite them and they have, they can (laughs) fight it off and they will eat every single tick that's on them. And so they they don't have a problem with, you know, like tick-borne diseases Mm. and they're very clean in that way. Anyway, so possums, are native to the American South, but they are all over the United States because Mm. there were several different failed entrepreneurial attempts to raise them as pets, (laughs) as meat, and as fur because they just breed you know, yeah. they breed like crazy and there are tons of them and they eat anything. Oh my god. And so there were all these different attempts over, you know, decades, centuries probably to bring them different places and try to raise them and they never worked. And so they would either let them go or they would <laughs> oh, escape. No. And so they are now anywhere that they can live where it's, you know, not too cold or they can get under your house and get warm enough to, you know, live. They'll yeah. they live everywhere. Wow. So it's kind of funny. That is hilarious, and I'm just imagining, like, your pet possum, you know, and just what that would be like. Yeah. Make him play dead. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Are they friendly? Like, they're pretty mellow, right, usually? Yeah. I mean, they have all kinds of defensive things that they do that look kind of scary, but I don't think they have... a ton of teeth. They they do have a ton of teeth, so they can (laughs) eat just about anything, and I think they'll hiss and they'll show them off at you, but I don't don't know if I've ever heard of somebody getting bitten by one. That's so funny. They would rather play dead or run away, which most animals would rather do. Like, it bugs me when people are afraid of... Eh, raccoons are different, Mm. but most of the wildlife that we have is really doesn't want to see you and even like snakes like people are so terrified of snakes it's like snakes do not want to see you like if they know you're coming you probably have them and you don't even know because they just slithered away 
people think they're after them like they are in the movies. You know, here comes the snake. It's coming through into the bedroom. Indiana Jones. Um, One fear. So talk to me about raccoons, though. Why should people be a little bit nervous about raccoons? Raccoons are just aggressive. Yeah. And if they're around people maybe they have there's something wrong with them but maybe there's not like that's the other thing is like people just assume they have rabies if they're Mm. looking kind of scruffy and in a neighborhood but they also could be a mother who's feeding her babies and is hungry and is not doing too great because she's hungry (laughs) trying to feed her babies so best thing to do is to just stay away and you could call animal control I guess but best thing is just stay away okay yeah that's great all right last question You've been doing this since you were a child, but what about finding nature all around you still takes your breath away? I think it's beauty, Mm. which is also why I like to draw. I just want to capture that beauty. I want to know more about it. Like you could get lost looking into Mm -hmm. the center of one daisy. Mm -hmm. You could get lost in there. You could pick one of those big weeds that you were saying, what's that weed? And if you look at it really close, you could see there might be like a spittle bug living on it, or there could be, you know, ladybugs laying their eggs on it or whatever. You just look deeper and deeper and deeper and there's always more there. And it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I just love that beauty. I love these greens. I love to sit here and look at all these different colors and it's wonderful. That's it. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) That's great. Thank you, Marnie. I appreciate it. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for prioritizing this. We've been trying to do this for months. Months. Months and months. So get to know the nature that's already in your neighborhood. Get lost staring into a daisy. Observe the changes in a tree over the course of a year. Let a ladybug crawl across your palm. And remember that you can also help enrich the nature in your neighborhood. I know we often see the negative impacts of humans on our environment, and those are very real, but they don't have to be our identity. People make positive impacts by restoring habitat literally every day. If we do that right at home, in our own yards and neighborhoods, we'll have even more to appreciate and connect with all around us. I want to thank Marnie for making the time for this interview and for becoming my friend and constantly cheering for me and this podcast. Don't forget to check out Marnie's book, Filling's Guide to Nature in Your Neighborhood, which is full of lovely illustrations of neighborhood species and a lot of surprising information about them. For example, I, as an English teacher, was very interested to find out how European starlings ended up on this continent. All right, I promised resources. So if you're looking to replace your lawn or simply add more native plants to your yard, I would start by going to calscape.org and entering your zip code, which will tell you which plants are native to your region and even groups them into categories like trees, shrubs, perennials, annuals, butterfly hosts, ground covers, and what kinds of growing conditions they like. Once you click on a plant you like, you'll see more information about things like how much sun and water it needs and which insects it hosts. Calscape also lists nurseries that carry each specific plant. But if you want a complete list of native plant nurseries in your region, check out bloomcalifornia.org. If you're outside of California, search for Native Plant Finder, which is a great tool created by the National Wildlife Federation. I'll list all of these in the show notes, but I know that it can also be helpful to talk with real humans or hire them for help. In which case, look for landscape companies that specialize in native plants or individuals or companies that have been certified as native plant landscapers through the California Native Plant Society. If you found this episode interesting or helpful in any way, don't forget to follow the show, share it with all your neighbors, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. These things help more than you know, and by doing them, you're helping more people discover this information, which could help your very own neighborhood feed more wildlife and contribute even more to the ecosystem. If you listen to the very end of the episode, I always tell you something interesting from my week. 
And this week, it's that I went out for an after-hours nature adventure last night to talk about nocturnal wildlife for a special spooky season episode that's coming out later this month. I'm so excited to share that with you. It was only my second ever episode recorded in the dark, and I'm not used to interviewing a disembodied voice, but it rocked, and I think you're going to love it. Okay, thanks for listening and hanging around to the very end of the episode. I can't wait to see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. Probably pause for a second. Hello.